well, a melody of John Lennon's Imagine uh, is beautiful. And it's inspiring. I've had it going through my head ever since I've been thinking about this. Thankfully, it's just been replaced by Josh's song from earlier this morning. Um, and, and I think, but the goal of the song, I love the goal of the song too. This is what he says, imagine all the people living life in peace. I think, I want to imagine that. Do you want to imagine that? That captures my imagination. I long to see that. I look at the world, I look at the news and I go, yeah, people living in peace with one another. I'd, I'd like to see that. The problem I've got with a song is how John Lennon thinks you're going to get there. How that reality might become true. He says that peace will come by imagining no heaven and no hell. By dreaming of the absence of God. Through a world with no countries or religion, with no one having anything worth dying for. Apparently that's good. Um, by no one having any possessions, but sharing everything, by everyone living for today. I wonder what that might look like. Let's get everyone to live for today. I suspect peace not be, might, won't be what you come out with at the other end. That's how, however, that song says it's all going to happen. And then John says, I want you all to join me in this wonderful vision of the future. Um, after he released Imagine... Another band of the time, a band called Steely Dan, that some of you might know of and most of you, you can Google it afterwards. Um, well, they listened to that song and they wrote a song in response to it called Only a Fool Would Say That. And the essence of the song was really, well, that's easy for you to imagine, John, with all of your wealth and with your security. I understand that he wrote it um, on a Georgian estate that he owned that's now owned by um, oil billionaires. Um, and... and uh, and the essence of it was, try walking, this is what they sang, try walking a few miles with a man in the street. Try walking a few miles with a person who comes home exhausted from work after, after a long day. Wait till you're old and tired and not young, John. Wait till you're broken from day's work. Live with me in my crime-riddled street and sing me that song. So, in other words, great idea, but how are you going to get there? And they had a point, as I said, Lennon was calling people to join him in imagining a future that Lennon himself wasn't actually prepared to live by. No possessions. As I said, he wrote Imagine in a Georgian country estate. He then bought a condominium on Central Park in New York and then bought five other apartments in the same block so that he wouldn't have to live next to anyone. His ideals were noble and I take a genuine, I don't want to, I think he really did want to see world peace, right? But any exploration of his life and character would suggest that his was not the path that you want to follow if you want to work out and live a life of peace. You don't, the idea might be good, but don't follow John's suggestion. So is possible, is peace possible? What's the path to getting there? Well, John wasn't the worst, first person to think about that he knew the way that peace could come about. So by the time the Emperor Augustus died, uh, the whole Mediterranean was under Roman rule. They called it Mare Nostrum, our sea, right? 
Uh, piracy had virtually been eradicated that had plagued the place. There was efficient road systems throughout the empire. People could travel safely. It was patrolled by troops. The Roman poet Horace wrote, as long as Caesar is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish peace. There we go. That was their boast. This is what they called the Pax Romana. Buy into Rome and what Rome's all about. Come and join us and you will be secure and you will have peace. Well, Rome also had its steely dance to point out that only a fool would say that. The historian Tacitus uh, wrote about the charges made by Rome's critics who would say, one of the quotes was, they rob, butcher, plunder and call it empire. And where they make a desolation, they call it peace. Well, in today's passage, God reveals the true path to peace and it's not the prosperity of empire or culture and it doesn't come by any means of John Lennon's imaginings. Have a look and we'll see how it comes. Chapter 5 begins with the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? You would have looked at last week. The scroll of God's judgment and salvation. Remember that, that wonderful vision of the throne room of God? And it finished with this resounding song of praise for the one on the throne, for Jesus the Lamb. And verse 9 of chapter 5 says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's this great sort of thing. Yes, at last we've got someone worthy who can bring in the rule of God and right all the wrongs. Well, chapter 6 gives us a vivid picture of what happens when the lamb starts to crack open each of those seals, one by one by one. Let's have a look at the first. I watched in verse six, chapter 6 verse 1, as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come! And I looked and there before me was a white horse its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Now the first four seals all start the same way. The lamb, that's Jesus, opens one of the seals and then one of the four living creatures, in this first one it's likely the one with a face like a lion, if we're understanding it's in the same order, and they call each of four horsemen, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, fourth. So you've got to think about this, these are the same living creatures we heard about last week, the ones whose songs of praise showed the harmony of all creation in praise of God. But now as God works His purposes in judgment and salvation, they are the ones who are now calling forth turmoil onto the earth. And it begins innocently enough. In fact, the first rider who's called forth seems noble at first, doesn't he? At least at the beginning. The horse is white, the colour of victory in Revelation. And we're told that this rider rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And he's wearing a crown. Now, if you're thinking of a big golden thing like a medieval king might wear, that's not what this word means. Um, by the way, if your name is Stephen, Stephanos is the word for crown, so your name means 
this word, right? Um, but if you've got that idea of a big, thick gold crown on your head, you've got the wrong picture. The word means a laurel wreath. So most often when the word's used, it's not gold, meaning something golden at all. It's a circlet of leaves, sometimes that were fashioned out of gold, if you were super important, that were placed upon your head. And it was the kind that was given in the Roman Empire to champions at athletic games and tournaments. It was what was bestowed upon victorious Roman generals when they had their massive triumph parades back in Rome after they conquered some of Rome's enemies. That's what's on this rider's head. And so to the original readers, the horseman would evoke, this horseman would evoke the image of Rome in its conquering glory, heading out to do more conquering. This is how good we are. But there's a difference. See, this horseman is holding a bow. And a Roman general would ride out holding a sword. They didn't start having um, horse archers until about 100 years after this. This conqueror is a horse archer. This is a warrior just like Rome's dangerous northern enemies on their northern border or their perennial and extremely feared enemy to the east, the Parthians, who had at points in their past swallowed up whole Roman legions and defeated them. Rome, in other words, are not the only ones bent on conquest. It's kind of like a Roman image is used and then twisted to say, oh, it's not you. Well, following this horseman comes another. The lamb opens the second seal, the second creature calls forth and a rider on a red horse strides forward. Fiery red, the red of battle, the red of bloodshed because that's what follows conquest, that's what comes with conquest, straight after conquest it's a bloody horse coming after that. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other and to him was given a large sword. Now, a couple of things to notice here. The rider was given power to take peace from the earth. So much for the peace and safety of the Pax Romana. That's going to get taken away. A peace and safety that worked for the Romans, though, but not for those who were under the heel of the Romans. They never enjoyed the Pax Romana, just ask the churches that were being persecuted. Well, this is saying, as they have done, so it will be done to them. Their boast of bringing forth peace through conquest was an illusion and only temporary. Their so-called peace actually masked oppression. It came with a jackboot. And in his judgment, God was going to expose the falsehood and the vanity of Rome. But the second thing I want to point out is that the word make, make people kill each other, there is a little misleading. Um, in the original, the verse reads literally, take peace also so that they would slay one another. So the removal of peace means that people do what people do. What this describes is not making people be violent who are not otherwise violent. It's removing the peace that God had actually provided. The picture is more that God, in his, own, in his judgment, is removing the restraints from people. So the people would do what is actually in them to do, to make war, to slay one another. That's what people do. 
And God intervenes regularly and holds us back. Worldly peace, in whatever sense it does exist, is actually a gift of God that we really don't appreciate, tend to appreciate. We give ourselves credit for maintaining peace, but it's actually God restraining sinful nature from doing what it tends to do. Earthly peace is not lasting peace, it's merely respite. God, in His kindness, holds humanity back from our darker excesses. And in His judgment, and even to work His greater purpose of salvation, he, as He does at the cross, sometimes God actually lets humanity off our leash. And then we get to see what happens. And that is what's being pictured here. And it gets worse. Let's have a look at the third seal. As surely as night follows day, conquest leads to war and battle, and war and battle leads to human hardship. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Now, the fact that the horse is black is not a good sign, because black in Revelation is always ominous, dark and foreboding, right? As we will see, it signals wrath, impending doom. The scales here are like a merchant scales, like you might find in a shop in those times. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, I take it that most of you are probably not up on exchange rates in the first century. So this is where I'll, I'll sort of illuminate you a little bit. I wasn't up at it. I had to read a book, okay? That's the way it works. So normally a day's wages would actually buy eight to 16 times the amount of wheat and barley that is mentioned here. So two pounds of wheat might feed a person for a day, six pounds of barley might feed a family. So what this is saying is these rates mean that a person's entire wage goes just to what you could eat that day just to stopping yourself from starving. The whole lot goes to that. But the voice says something strange. Did you notice that add-on bit where it says, oh, make sure the oil and wine stay protected. What's that all about? Well, when war came, food would get diverted to the army. That's what the Romans did. They matter more than you right now. We're sending it to the army. Supply chains got disrupted. Wealthy profiteers tended to hoard what grain they did have, because that would drive up the price and mean that their profit margins would be bigger, or they might just be keeping it to themselves because they're thinking, gee, there's not a whole lot of this around, I'm going to make sure that me and mine are looked after. Grain shortages were made worse by the fact that crops like wine and oil made a better profit. But they don't feed families. And so, but yet people often started getting rid of their grounds which had grain on them and started planting oil and, and vines so that they could make more money. And what's more, they were less vulnerable to being trampled over by rampaging armies who were going to walk across a field rather than walk through an orchard. This was the Roman economy that was geared up to always maintaining its army and profiting the elite. And when war happens, the glove comes off, doesn't it? Everyone's for himself in war. The rich get richer and the poor suffer and go without. 
In judgment, God was going to take off the brakes, let the system and those who bought into it be their greedy, selfish selves. When security gets shaken, it exposes the reality of human nature. And we have been shown that this is what lies just underneath the surface, even in our own civilised and prosperous society, haven't we? All it took was a pandemic. Need I remind you? Toilet paper. How quick did that happen? Toilet paper, mints, tissues, am I giving you flashbacks? Pasta, flour, tin tomatoes. The selfish hoarder hoards. The one who fears losing because the selfish hoarder is hoarding feels like they've got to play the same game and so they then jump in and start hoarding. And then the one who tries to do the right thing is left with nothing. I was chatting to someone this week who bought a bidet during, um, during, <laughs> seriously, I'm not kidding. I went, really? <laughs> you bought a bidet during, anyway. But see, it didn't take long, did it, for our society to show that a fair go for all, Pax Romana, fair go for all, that's the Australian boast, isn't it? That becomes get out of my way as quick as it takes Gladys to say lockdown. And it just went, poof. get out of my way. Well, the lamb opens the fourth seal and the fourth creature summons forth the fourth horseman. This one is the worst one. This is the horseman who brings home the horrific consequences of the first three. I looked. There before me was a pale horse and its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now this horse is pale in the sense of pale green. It is not a natural colour for a horse. It's the word from which we get chlorine or chlorophyll. That's the word that's being used here. It's the colour of severe sickness. It's the colour of a corpse. With conquest comes war and violence, with war and violence comes hunger, and with hunger comes death. The rider on the green horse comes forth, and people get killed, and people starve, and illness ravages the malnutritioned population, and with the able men off fighting battles, the wild beasts, which were far more plentiful then than now, are left unchecked. That was the world of empire. Death and Hades um, are here pictures, personifications, right, of, of the grave, of death, right? And so they're pictured, if you've got a vivid imagination, as kind of loping behind the fourth horseman like ghouls, taking, snatching life from all of the weak that they see, all the ones who've been sickened, all the ones who've been raided, and all of those who are starving. In chapter 1, Christ has the keys to death and Hades, He's the one who's holding back death. He's the one who's holding back the grave. And he has conquered it. And he's going to do that decisively at the end of the book of Revelation. Spoiler alert, death and Hades get theirs, right? But here he uses those keys to unleash them in judgment. But even now, do you notice the restraint? 
That's a fourth of the earth. This is not the final judgment. It is severe, but three quarters of the earth are spared these fearsome horsemen, at least for the moment. There is a warning here, I think, for the complacent, say the churches at Sardis or Laodicea. Earthly peace, earthly security is only ever temporary. Sooner or later, all empires fall. All cultures get turned upside down. Crises come. Selfishness and corruption takes hold. And death and tribulation surely follows. Only God can truly hold back human nature. And when he lets us be us, the four horsemen are the consequence. What we call normal life is actually life with God restraining human wickedness, restraining us in his goodness. The four horsemen are all very familiar over the course of history and all very human. There is not a continent, there is not a people group that at some time or another has not either been the riders or been ridden over by them. And as Romans 1 reminds us, in judgment, God's wrath begins by giving humanity over to themselves to do what is in our fallen hearts to do. It's its own punishment. Well, the scroll of God's judgment and salvation has got more seals to be opened. And the next two seals reveal a stunning inversion on the human perception of peace. There's two seals, there's two categories of people and two key questions that reveal where peace does and where it doesn't lie. While the forces of conquest and empire rampage, we're shown another group of people. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now, in the eyes of mighty Rome, these people were the miscreants, the disposables, the ones who couldn't get on the bus of greed, immorality and idolatry and so got run over by that bus because they kept testifying about Jesus and they kept holding steadfastly in obedience to his word and wouldn't compromise in the face of social pressure and so they killed them. People like Antipas of Pergamum that we read about earlier in the book, like the suffering church of Smyrna, like the Christians whom Nero blamed for the fire of Rome and burnt to death to illuminate his dinner parties, like Peter that they crucified upside down, like Paul whom they beheaded, like James the brother of John who was killed even in the earliest days of the church and Herod thought, oh this went down well, I'll try to do some more and of course countless sins. They were troublemakers, no peace for them, you don't look at that and go, well there's peace or is there? Where does John see them? Under the altar, in the throne room of God. Right? The, the altar was a place of sacrifice. So there's an image here where they're pictured here as being worthy and acceptable to God, like their lives were given in pleasing worship to their Saviour. In the Old, Old Testament, the altar was also seen as a place of safety, of refuge. You would run to the altar to, in order to escape your enemies. They are not just holding on to the altar though, they're under it. 
The picture says being under the altar, shielded in the very presence of God, the safest place imaginable. And the altar was also a place of prayer. So wherever they might find themselves in the world, the Old Testament readers, you can have a look at this in 1 Kings 8, but the Old Testament believers were called to pray towards the altar of Jerusalem, of the temple, and that they would have their prayers heard and that God would look favourably upon them because of the sacrifices that were being made. And, and, And pray is what these martyrs do. Verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, this is not a challenge or rebuke of God. This is a question because they know who God is. What do they say? You are sovereign, you're holy, you are true, and you will judge. We know that about you, God. And we know that you will hold those who have harmed us to account. We trust you. Their question is, when? When's this going to happen? When does this all get to end? Echoing the cries of numerous psalms, echoing the cries of the prophet Habakkuk, they ask, how long, O Lord? How long? Until you work your justice. And the Lord answers their prayer in verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. No one would look at this and say, peace. And yet, see, the the world saw them as defeated, as examples of what happens when you don't embrace the way of Rome, when you don't buy into the Pax Romana. God, however, gives them, them, the white robe of honour, of victory. God gives it to them, says, that's what I think of you. But the answer to their prayer is also a little longer. It is literally a micron of time. Regardless of how long it is in earthly years, when you're in the presence of God, it's, it's a blink of an eye when it comes to the whole marking out of eternity in His presence. But yes, they are to wait. But even here, they're literally told it's better than wait. It's not, just hang on. It's rest. They're told to rest a little while longer. Rest is a blessing. That's God blessing. Guys, you can rest now. Don't distress. Rest. You're safe. Your race is run. You're victorious. You made it. Rest until I've gathered the rest to you. But then, with the sixth seal, we're introduced to another category of people. And in contrast to the rest and safety of the faithful witnesses that they're all enjoying, the picture John is given is of a cosmic scale event that totally outshadows the the, the devastation brought by the four horsemen. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 6. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Wow, that's, we've just accelerated things a notch, haven't we? Every one of these events is a a terrifying portent, though, of God's coming wrath. 
They're, they're, they're like pre-shocks before the big shock. The earthquake, the darkened sun, the bloody moon. In the ancient world, shooting stars and comets were often seen as omens of disaster. Well, look at this one. Here the stars are dropping everywhere out of the sky like, like, like fruit from a cha- shaken tree. The world's being turned upside down and it's terrifying. And while those that are persec- they persecuted, they're safe. They're resting in the presence of God. These champions of empire, these wealthy and rich and exploitative and everything else, and everyone who jumped in with them and said, we're with you, we like this, they're anything but safe. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains... They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? So you've got the two pictures in your head, the contrasting pictures. The martyrs, killed by this lot, but where are they now? Protected under the altar, crying out in hopeful prayer. And their mighty persecutors are hiding in the rocks like cringing lizards. And they cry out in terror. And their cry, though, is a significant one. Remember it, because there's an answer to it coming. Who can withstand the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb? Who can, who can withstand that? Who can stand? What's the answer to that question? We're about to find out. But first, there's an unexpected calm. At, at the first, at those, the signs... All the signs suggest the end, the end, the end. It's about to happen, it's about to come. But then the end doesn't come. There's a pause. Now, this is what we read earlier. Um, John is shown four mighty angels standing at each point of the compass, holding back devastating winds that are poised, ready to be released upon the earth like some earth-scouring tornadoes. Right? You've just got going, this holding them back, holding them back, and these massive angels are doing it. But then another angel says, wait, pause, not yet. Why? Well, this is what John hears in verse 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. God will send warnings of his judgment, signs of what is to come. We've heard many of those signs. We've experienced many. Look at the last 2,000 years of human history. The final judgment's ready. Ready. But God is holding it back. He's holding it back until He has marked out all who belong to Him. All who belong to Him. The seal on the forehead symbolises two things. Protection and possession. Those He heals are safe. I've marked them. And those he seals are loved. They're his. They're his people. No one's going to touch them. They're mine. I love them. In other words, there are still people, John is being shown, that God is planning to save. And his final judgment is waiting. It's been waiting since Christ ascended to the right hand of God. It's been waiting. And it will fall, though, only 
when all of those whom God has chosen to save, he will protect. He will place his seal upon them. Well, John then hears how many God is planning to put his seal upon. 144,000. You saw it mapped out there, 12,000 times 12. Now, remember, this is the symbolic language of Revelation. One of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature, which is what this is, is the symbolic use of numbers. So any literal oh, there's only literally 144,000, if you're 144,001, bad luck to you, is, is just a complete misreading of this, right? In the symbolic language of Revelation, 12 is the number of God's people and thousands means lots, right? So 12 times 12,000 means the full complement of every tribe of God's people and the fact that it's times a thousand says, man, there's going to be a lot of them. Heaps of them. They're all going to be there and there'll be lots. But when the number is, numbers are broken down in verses 5 to 8, it seems that they, to, these, all the people of God seem to be all from the tribes of Israel there. Although I want to point out to you two interesting variations in that list. If you're measuring it up and measuring it against things in the Old Testament, you'll go, hang on a minute, there's a tribe absent. The tribe of Dan isn't listed, it's not there. And Ephraim is not mentioned either. He seems to be included, probably, but only under the name of Joseph, his father, who was also the father of Manasseh, but Manasseh gets his name on there. And I think this is what the writer of Revelation is doing here, what John is, is being shown, is because in the Old Testament, there were two golden calves that the, that the northern kingdom of Israel set up. This was the big reason they were wiped out. The idols that corrupted the northern kingdom of Israel were located in Bethel, which was in the hill country of Ephraim and in Dan in the northern kingdom. That's where the two golden calves are. That was the reason they were wiped out according to the prophets. The sealed people of God then here are symbolically excluding those that compromise with idolatry. idolatry. So 144,000 from the people of Israel. That's what John heard. But then we're told what John saw. And he didn't see 144,000 people. And he didn't only see Israelites. That was a representative figure that was trying to explain something. Now he actually turns around and goes, whoa, this is what we're really talking about. And when he sees those who are sealed, he sees that there's many, many, many more than 144,000. And the nature of how God has sealed them also will become clear. Look at verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So this is why judgment was being held back. This is why the angels were doing their thing and going, oh, rack off, stop it, wind. You know, that's why they were doing all of this. These people needed to get gathered. They needed to get sealed. This is who God was in the process of saving. This is the fruit of all of the faithful witnessing that meant that some got killed and enjoyed the presence of God under the altar. An uncountable multitude of people of every kind, clothed in white robes of victory, the very same robes that the martyrs under the altar were given. The, this innumerable multitude singing songs of worship. And what did they sing? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They were singing salvation songs. And in verses 13 and 14, we're told how they were sealed, how they came to wear the robes of victory. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. 
They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They stand victorious in the presence of God because they were cleansed of their sin by Jesus' sacrificial death from, for them on the cross. Because they heard and responded to the gospel. That's why they're standing there. That's how they get sealed. They endured the hardship. They endured the persecution that came from bearing the name of Jesus. And they remained faithful to him to the very end. They did not find peace in this world, no, but they found tribulation, trials for the sake of Christ, hardship for the sake of Christ. But what's the result? Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is peace. That is peace in its fullness. And in fact, it's not quite, because you actually get a bigger picture of how full that peace is when you get to the end of the book of Revelation. But let's keep our powder dry for then, shall we? But let me tell you, this is a reality worth your imagination. This is something to sing about. Except, unlike John Lennon's fatally flawed, humanistic, foolish vision, this one's going to happen. It's promised, it's guaranteed to happen. And far from being the result of the abandonment of God, it's going to be with God right in the middle of it. And that's the way the peace comes about. And that's where the enjoyment of that peace is going to be lived. Brothers and sisters, Revelation 6 and 7 show us the temporary and even false nature of earthly security. We've got to let... You'll hear this again. <laughs> I don't want to say too much on this one because it's going to come up in future talks. But, but human rule does not bring lasting peace because human nature is not peaceful. The breaking of the seals in some ways is the breaking of an illusion and a warning both to the Christians of first century Asia Minor and to us today that if you want to seek peace by compromising with and just rolling in with the idolatrous culture around us, it's walking a false path who will, which will lead to destruction, not to peace. Rather, it is the wrath of the Holy God that is at the end of that line, who will judge such a world and those who embrace it for the violence, greed, oppression and persecution of his people that has happened. But the breaking of that illusion must caution us, I think, as Christians, from taking the wayward path of seeing some, seeking some kind of utopia in this world, Right? Not necessarily compromising and saying, hey, I'm riding with Pax Romana, but, but sort of going, what my mission is, is, is seeking peace in this world. Let's try and establish a, a utopia now. There's an expression that theologians call an over-realised eschatology, and what that basically means is you take what's at the end and you put it in the now as if that's where it belongs. It is right to be concerned, for instance, about the environment. I'm letting that sit because I mean it. I'm not, well, there's a, there is a but coming, you know, the way these sorts of things are phrased. But let me let that sit. It is right to be concerned about the environment, and I hope you are. 
and it is right to be concerned for social justice, and I hope you are, and it is right to speak truth to power and to call for change, and I hope you will. It is right and good to do our part to improve the lives of people around us, and it is right to seek to bring good to our society. The Bible also calls us to pray for all of those who are in authority, right? So we're meant to do that. But sometimes Christians can engage in what you might call mission creep. We can focus too much of our energy and passion into making the world a better place. We must do good, yes, but we must do so knowing that ultimately it is like pouring wine into a cask that's got a hole in it. There will be wars and rumours of wars, no matter what you do, because Jesus said there's going to be, and history has proven it. And there will be greed, and there will be corruption, and there will be injustice, and there's going to be poverty, and there's going to be sickness. You can't stop those horsemen riding. And God in his goodness might use us to hold some of that back, and that's one of the reasons why you might do it. You're bringing good to this world by actually bringing blessing, by calling God to do these things, right? To, to, to hold back. But it is a dark tide and it will inevitably and repeatedly return. We've just got to come to terms with that. And sometimes God will even make sure that it returns and remove peace so that people will humble themselves, recognise their deadly spiritual condition and come to know the peace that will last forever. The winds of God's judgment are being held back so that the gospel can go forth. That is the mission of the church. That is the heart of what we are on about, to proclaim the truth of Christ, even as we are doing good, to proclaim the truth of Christ in season or out of season, so the people might be sealed for him and enjoy a peace that will not disappear, but will endure for eternity. There is only one perfect future and there is only one way people will get there. Invest your life more into that than into trying to make it happen now. But what Revelation reveals for us is that the true path to peace, the one true path to peace, comes through the crucible of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Christ. It comes from wearing the ridicule and abuse, and alienation, and the sacrifices, and, and, and persevering in both modelling and proclaiming the love of Jesus. There's lots I love about the final verse in chapter 7, but the bit that I love the most is that last line there, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I love it because it's not merely the absence of tears, it's about the loving hand of God wiping away the tears because they've endured tribulation for the sake of Christ. There have been tears and the one for whom they shed them is going to be the one that's going to tenderly wipe them away, even as they sing his praises. And that's a beautiful future that I'm looking forward to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we don't just have to imagine a reality that will never happen but that we have a wonderful, beautiful future to look forward to. We thank you that it's because of Jesus and we pray that the word of, of his saving work will be on our lips, that we'll model it in our lives. Um,
Father, please have mercy on the world around us. Please, in your grace, continue to hold back human sin, to hold back war as we know you can. We know that it's not because we deserve peace in our own, but because um, we seek to love our neighbours and we want them to hear about Christ and not encounter your judgment. So, Father, help us to be a, a church that is faithful to you and steadfast, that we might enjoy your presence and rest. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.